Wabi Sabi in the book it says shows us the beauty of the fleeting, changeable, and imperfect nature of the world around us. Instead of searching for beauty and perfection, we should look for it in the things that are flawed and incomplete. And it says in the book, this is why Japanese play such a value, for an example, on an irregular cracked teacup. Because it says only things that are imperfect, incomplete, and ephemeral can truly be beautiful because only those things resemble the natural world. Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back to another episode of Live an Extraordinary Life. I am your host, Tim Bishop, and this podcast serves as a guide to help you to find what an extraordinary life is for yourself. In today's episode, I will be talking about the international best-selling book, Ikigai, and the subtitle is The Japanese Secret to a Long and Happy Life. So this book is all about a rural town in Okinawa, Japan. And I believe the pronunciation is Omigi, and it's the northern end of the island, a population of only about 3,000 people. And their claim to fame is that they boast that this town has the highest life expectancy in the world, a, uh, a fact that has earned them the nickname, the Village of Longevity. So in this episode, I'm going to just basically talk about some of the highlights of the book that I found valuable to share and hopefully some of it resonates with you. So starting off, Ikigai, that is kind of their slogan, and it basically means the reason you get up in the morning. And this is really important to Japanese people. It is a purpose, you could call it. It is doing something you love. It is, you know, insert anything of that variety. But there is a little bit of a diagram in the book, and it combines four things, Ikigai. And I think that this is You know, one way to break down how you look at life, and I think it's a pretty good model for doing it. Um, So the first thing is what you love. The second thing is what the world needs. The third thing is what you can be paid for. And the fourth thing is what you're good at. So basically mixing your passions, your skills, what the needs are in the world, and then what you can make money off of. And that's a good way to find what they would call your ikigai. So you know, I thought about it in my own life, right? If you're breaking down those four things, you're going to start to kind of identify things in each category. And then once you are able to find alignment between all four things that could relate to some sort of career, job, business you want to build, then you could go off and you could do that thing. Another interesting thing about the Japanese language is that there really is no word for retire um, in the sense of leaving the workforce for good as we have in English. Um, the idea of retirement doesn't really exist because it's such a purpose-driven culture and this ikigai is something that they wish that they could do to the day they die. So I thought that's kind of an interesting part of it. And now, so the rest of the book um, you know, dives into really different avenues of of what plays into kind of your ikigai and your purpose on more of a broader level. So I highlighted and jotted down, again, my favorite things, and I will kind of run through those now. So I've done a full podcast episode about the Moais, um, but if you haven't heard what a Moai is, um, this plays a big role in their longevity. And it's basically, as it says in this book, an informal group of people with common interests who look out for one another. Now, I didn't talk about it um, in full detail, or I didn't take notes in full deal t- detail on it because I already know about the Moais, but basically they're a lifelong support group. It's a lifelong group of friends. You can share fun conversation, but also support. And it originated from having support of all senses, um, emotional, financial, social, again, in really every aspect of your life. It served as a second family. 
And so that obviously, I guess you could see how that gives you a lot of purpose in your life because along with your family, which in these towns, the familial support is already very strong. You're adding in almost a second tribe of, of sorts and an informal group of people that really look out for you and has your back. So if you want to hear more about the Moais, you can go to an uh, episode that I released also in season one earlier. If you scroll through the episodes, you will be able to find it. Um, but I won't, go, I won't go in detail again about that. So another interesting thing in this book that I really enjoyed reading about was they were comparing they were comparing early and they call them cave dwellers versus modern humans. So just take somebody who was living way back when um, a uh, in a, in a time that wasn't modern humanity. Um, so in a tribe or or um, you know cave dwellers as they call them in this book, but they were comparing and contrasting the differences. So. The interesting thing that they were talking about is, again, the humans were born to have stress and fear. Now, stress and fear were good because usually it only came up in specific situations. And those situations were when we faced real threats. Um, For example, an animal was approaching or something really bad was going to happen. A big storm was coming. And we need to take a specific action, right? The fight or flight response uh, in the human brain, we needed to either face the problem or get out of the way and, you know, save ourselves to do whatever, do whatever we need to do. So it talks about how, you know, the, the reason for stress and fear were, were very rooted in survival. But now it's interesting because most modern day health problems are caused by stress. And in the book, it kind of compared and contrasts again, the original function of stress and fear as opposed to now how it, how it applies in today's world. So when we're looking at cave dwellers versus modern humans, Cave dwellers were relaxed most of the time, and humans work most of the time. And like I said before, cave dwellers felt stress only in, only in specific situations, while modern humans are always online, waiting for notifications 24-7, and even the ping of a cell phone or an email notification can, can trigger that stress or that fear. And it's interesting because it, the book literally says it's the same part of the brain, you know, the part of our brain that gets anxious waiting for a message or an email or, or kind of feeling like we're always on is the same part of the brain that would signal with, you know, a threat, a, pre- a predator, a real threat out in the wild. So this causes us to always be in a state of, and I'm not saying everyone's always stressed or in fear, but it's, you know, it's interesting to know that when our brain is always on, stress and fear are always kind of near, even if there's no real threat at hand. So that's really interesting and you know I'm a I've always been a big supporter and throughout this podcast and probably will be in the future of of kind of mindfulness um and meditation because the book even gives an example is you know one way to help filter the information that reaches us from the outside world is just to do some mindfulness meditation right to just when we when we know that now okay our brain you know, evolution from an evolutionary perspective, a, a biological perspective, has stress and fear. And sometimes we get stress and fear when there isn't actually a, a dangerous situation or a real threat at hand. And when you can sit with your thoughts and do some mindfulness meditation and, and really dive into them, you can better start to have, you can better start to understand the relationship you have with your emotions and understand when there actually is a real threat that action is required or when there's a time when you understand that the stress and fear do not serve you and you can do your best to, you know, befriend the stress and fear 
and then to let it go. So that's an interesting way that they talked about how to deal with the stress. And I think the big part of it really is just becoming more aware of it. You know, now that you've listened to this, understanding that when you're feeling stressed and anxious, this is really your fight or flight response in your body. And it's, it's your mind telling your body that you have to do something. And that's where an anxiety kind of comes in or some sort of negative emotional response. And if you can sit and listen to that and ask yourself, is this a valid emotion? Is this emotion, another way I've heard it said before is, is this emotion telling me the truth? And if it's not, then you can start to understand, then you can start to understand, okay, well, I don't have to, you know, fight or flight as one, a cave dweller, if we're going to keep using this analogy, would have done. I can just learn to be from this emotion and say, okay, I'm stressed. Um, that's okay, but I know this emotion isn't serving me, and I can do my best to then move on from that emotion and let it go. So, and this is backed by, again, the studies in the book. There's this Yeshiva University. I honestly didn't look up where it was. I assume it's somewhere in Japan, but really it, it correlates people with living long lives and having a high emotional awareness. And I think that's just kind of what I was just talking about, right? You're very aware of your emotions and how they're coming up and you learn to have a really good relationship with them. And it's a big key to living a long life. So moving on to another point that I liked in the book, it brought up Viktor Frankl. And I've also done an episode on his book, Man's Search for Meaning. But it brought up, you know, because it, it talked about, well, a lot of people don't know what their purpose is. They don't know how to find it, and they don't know, you know, the reason for living. And it talked about Viktor Frankl and actually how he, the logotherapy was the practice that he practiced and how that tradition goes about how people figure out their purpose. And it actually asked it in a pretty harsh sense, but he said he would lead by asking people, why do you not commit suicide? And it's a very, you know, kind of harsh and direct way of helping people identify reasons that they live. So if you say, why, why not commit suicide? Seriously, write down 20 reasons or more. And it really helps you to understand, okay, these are the reasons that I enjoy living. And from there, you go about and you break down a purpose. So it's a kind of a backwards way to do it. I actually haven't tried the exercise yet, but it's an interesting way to look at helping yourself get a first step at finding a purpose and how to have that hopefully help you, you know, live a better life and have you more awareness around the things that really matter to you in your life. Also in this section, it was pretty interesting because I found the scientific name for the Sunday scaries. And again, this is a pretty harsh definition, but so it's called Sunday neurosis. I didn't know it actually had a actual name, but it's basically what happens when the book says, this is the direct quote, without the obligations and commitments of the work week, the individual realizes how empty he or she is inside. He has to find a solution. Above all, he has to find his purpose, his reason for getting out of bed. So, you know, you could, this again, is a pretty harsh statement. It says he realizes how empty he is inside. Because I think for some people, it's different reasons why the Sunday scary hits. You're, you know, stressed about the work week or you're, frankly, potentially hungover. Or, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why people could feel Sunday neurosis. But it is interesting when you think about how many people, you know, talk about the Sunday scaries. And, and this saying, you know, a solution of that, of, of kind of having your Sunday be something that 
if this applies to you. Some people love Sundays. You watch football, you chill. Life's great. You know, I'm not saying that everyone hates Sundays, but I'm saying if there's a common thread of you being stressed or anxious on a Sunday, you know, again, he says the solution above all is finding a purpose, a reason for getting on a, a reason for getting on a bed. Because if that, if you do that, then no matter what day of the week is, whether it's a work day or not a work day, you're going to feel like you have something to do, a purpose to, to go out and live. So again, this isn't really referring to everyone. This would be referring to people who commonly find themselves feeling stressed or anxious um, on a Sunday and maybe diving deeper into kind of some of these purpose-driven things would be a potential solution to, um, to eliminating that Sunday neurosis, as Frankel says. So moving on to a few more things that I really enjoyed. So the book talked about flow and flow is this state of optimal experience. It was one of the first positive psychologists um, in the world was the first one to talk about flow. And like I just said, it's when you're in the state of optimal experience and you're so engaged in an activity that nothing else seems to matter. The experience itself the experience itself is so enjoyable that people will do it even at a great cost just for the sheer sake of doing it. Now, when I first learned about flow and I first described it to people, I talk about it in the lens of, you know, when you were playing a sport and you were in the zone or, I don't know, people you're playing an instrument or you're doing something where nothing else seems to matter. You're completely locked in and you're doing that one thing, you're doing it fully. And you're just so engaged in whatever that is. And I guess I played basketball, and I relate that to like the games when you're just, nothing else is on your mind. You're not worried about anything. You're just playing. You're playing your absolute best because you're just so locked in and so focused. And there's actually ways to reach the state in our day-to-day life. And in the book, it says, you know, one key ingredient for happiness is to be able to reach the state of flow and have optimal experiences as much as we can. So there's kind of seven conditions for flow to to occur, and I'm not going to get too into it. But basically the idea is you're, there's a challenge at hand, you're focused on that one thing, and, and you're completely locked in free of distraction. So the seven conditions are knowing what to do, knowing how to do it, knowing how well you are doing, perceiving, perceiving significant challenges, perceiving significant skills, and being free from distractions. So basically there's kind of this spectrum. So it says like if something's, it kind of takes it on a, your skills and the challenge of the activity. So if your skills are above the challenge, you'll probably get bored. So if it's too easy, you'll get bored. So, you know, that's probably a good example keeping the sports analogy going, if I were to go to the gym and play basketball against a bunch of elementary school kids, I'd probably get bored because the challenge doesn't meet my skill, unless I find other ways to enjoy that, like hanging out with kids and entertaining them. Now, if the challenge is way above my skill, then I might find anxiety. Then I might be like, okay, I'm trying to run for, you know, president of the company, but I'm only 22 years old. So, you know, can I do that right now? Could I really go up and challenge my the, the boss and the president or, or, you know, of the company or, or I guess going back to the sports analogy, right? I want to go play in the NBA. Okay. So toss me in an NBA game. I'd probably be pretty stressed because I'd probably get my butt kicked because my skill does not meet the challenge. So the perfect flow money zone is when our skills and our challenge align where we know that we can do it, but we know there's also a challenge at hand. And 
that is when we can get into this state of optimal experience and this state of, you know, state of flow. And again, the reason why this is so important is that, you know, people often think that they're really good multitaskers. And it's it's true. People, you know, you can do multiple things at one time, but the evidence is really saying that our brains aren't really doing things all at once. Our brains are really bouncing back and forth a million times from this thought to that thought, from this thought to that thought. And what it does, is it actually just makes us very scatterbrained, right? Because our brains can actually only process a few dozen bits of information per second. So again, when we're multitasking, we're just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. What we're actually doing is we're training our brains to pay attention to every single stimulus, regardless of what's important. And we're not training our brain to be able to focus on one simple thing. So mindfulness meditation is actually supposed to be the complete opposite of this. Mindfulness meditation is training our brains to be able to focus on things for long periods of time. And multitasking is actually a direct opposite of that, where it's training our brains to basically indirectly not be able to focus on things for long periods of time. And this actually then leads to lower productivity and lower happiness because our brains are always kind of all over the place. So there's some tips for reaching flow, and I can tell you how I do it. The tips they have in the book are basically don't look at a screen an hour before bed and the first hour of the day. Turn off your phone to achieve flow. Um, Read and respond to email only once or twice per day. Start work sessions with the ritual, and then use meditation to stay mindful. So what I do is I actually now set my timer for 90 minutes, and I know that's the start of a work session for me. And a ritual to start that for some people could be like, I have a cup of coffee. For me, it's usually a glass of water or a tea or maybe a little bit like a stretching or just push up. There's something to like say, okay, I'm about to start a 90-minute work session. And then what I do is I don't use my phone in those 90 minutes unless for work purposes. So if I have to use my phone because I'm on social media a lot making posts or I'm you know finding videos and content to upload or I'm doing stuff like podcasting, if I have to be on my phone then I will be, but I don't use it for personal reasons in those 90 minutes. And when the 90 minutes are done, I take my break and I can, you know, respond to emails, respond to texts, um, to be on my phone, whatever. But then in those 90 minutes, it allows me to, again, reach that state of optimal experience because I have one goal. Oh, I didn't mention before I start the 90 minutes, I set my goals for those 90 minutes. Okay, this amount of time, I need to finish this amount of stuff. And now I'm going to, you know, start. Now I'm going to do it. So, Really, whether you're an entrepreneur or you have, uh, you know, uh, you're not, you're working for someone else or even in kind of your day-to-day life, you can kind of use these things to create some structure and challenge in your days and help you stay motivated, stay focused and stay, um, if I didn't already say focused, stay focused on what you're doing and enjoy it more because again, you're living in a state of optimal experience. So... Closing up here, um, a few last things pretty quick. Another thing that they mention in the book is that really in this town, um, this town in Okinawa, Omigi, they say that, you know, a lot of their guys actually come from volunteer work. And this kind of goes back to saying, you know, your purpose in life doesn't always need to be fulfilled through work. Um, I think that we spend a lot of time in our lives working and it'd be nice to have you something you care about, but if it doesn't at the current moment, it doesn't mean that your life's over or that you can't find a purpose. You know, I think that no matter what age you are, you can find purpose in volunteering your time, whether it's to your friends 
or to your family or to, you know, things in your community. You know, there's always a way that you can feel like what I did today made a difference. So, you know, I guess I personally believe my intuition says that there shouldn't ever be an excuse to have weeks on weeks on weeks on end where you feel like you're not doing anything meaningful because always opportunities to go volunteer your time and do something meaningful. And before I get to the closing thoughts, a quick things about the longevity aspect for eating and drinking. So there's this one ritual they have and it's called Harabachihu or how I guess it's maybe pronounced Harahachihu. Um, and this is be- every time before they eat food, they sit down, they look at their food and they say this. And what it basically is, it's, it's one kind of giving gratitude for the food and where it came from. But two, it's reminding themselves to eat till they're only 80% full. And this is like what they claim to be their claim to fame um, on why they are so healthy because the brain doesn't, I guess, like realize how full you are until a little bit, like, like it's not like fully lined up. Like you can be full, but your brain doesn't tell you're full yet. So you keep eating, keep eating until you feel full. But then you actually have overate. We've all felt that multiple times. And you're like, you finish your meal, you feel good. And then like 10 minutes later, you're like a potato on the couch. And you're like, holy crap, I cannot move. And so this, it, it feels weird because I've tried it sometimes. I'm honestly not great at it. But I've, you know, it feels weird because you're like, oh, okay, well, 80% also, like, you don't exactly know what that is. But you're like, oh, okay, I, I don't feel totally full. But is this kind of the point where I would stop eating here? Uh, but it's just interesting. You know, I think that it's a tradition to work in a little bit of gratitude to your uh, meals. But also it helps you eat a little bit less if you kind of say something before, like remind yourself the 80% rule. You know, this is also one of Dan Butner's and his Blue Zone work, which again, I rave. This is also one of their core nine principles, which is eat to 80% full. Don't overeat. Overnutrition actually is just really bad for you in general. And then also they do two days of intermittent fasting per week. Again, I haven't really done a lot of research on that, so I won't touch on that a ton in this episode because I don't exactly know what all that entails or the benefits of doing that. But basically, two days a week, they do some sort of fasting. So I'll hopefully be able to do an episode on that later on and help share information on that. So before I get to my closing statement, the last thing here is, you know, it really says that a wise person can live with pleasures but isn't enslaved by them. And I think that this is, you know, interesting because you think about life and people are like, well, you know, on this path of personal development and personal growth, like, are you just cutting all the fun stuff out of life? And and I think the answer is no. You know, I think that we can, you know, go out and, and, and drink and, and, and have good times and dance and listen to music, right? All the things that are just fun. These are pleasurable things. These are things that are usually social activities. You know, the pleasures of life are good, but I think... The point of the book here is don't be enslaved by just the pleasures, right? Don't have these be the mere things that control your life because then when you're not going through something pleasurable, then your life won't have meaning. And if you root your meaning in an ikigai or a reason for living or a purpose, then you're going to have a lot more purpose to your life and you're going to be able to enjoy those pleasurable things a lot more than you could. All right, so closing statements. There's these two things that I absolutely love. And one of them is called Wabi Sabi, and this is a Japanese saying. And Wabi Sabi, in the book, it says, shows us the beauty of the fleeting, changeable, and imperfect nature of the world around us. Instead of searching for beauty and perfection, we should look for it in the things that are flawed and incomplete. And it says in the book, this is why Japanese play such a value, for an example, on an irregular cracked teacup. 
because it says only things that are imperfect, incomplete, and ephemeral can truly be beautiful because only those things resemble the natural world. So what a beautiful saying. In a world that values or just strives to be perfect in every way and strives to be beautiful in every way, this is just saying you are beautiful with all your flaws, with all the things that are wrong with you, in quotation marks, wrong with you. And that resembles the natural world more than anything. And the second saying is Ichigo Ichi-e. And this, the translation of this is basically saying this moment exists only now and won't ever come again. And it is heard most often in social gatherings as a reminder of each encounter, whether with friends, family, or strangers. Um, this moment is unique and will never be repeated, meaning that we should enjoy the moment and not lose ourselves in the worry of the past or future. So again, just two absolutely money Japanese sayings. Like those are, you know, those can be written on a million um posters and pictures and posted all over social media and it would just be a great reminder to you know one accept the imperfection of the world and to be uh, but two live in the moment so i think that you know absolutely beautiful stuff here and to close it out the 10 tips uh, from the book to ikigai says one stay active and don't retire two slow it down basically don't be in a rush in life three don't fill your stomach, 80% rule. Four, surround yourself with good people, so form a moai. Five, get in shape, pretty simple. Six, smile. Seven, reconnect with nature. Eight, give thanks. Nine, live in the moment. And 10, follow your ikigai. So again, these things, you know, it's always, this is just funny because I, I think that these things are the 10 takeaways. They just seem so simple, so obvious, so um, not profound but in a lot of ways i just think these simple things in life are the most profound ones and if you start to take the simple things um as the most important things that it can really you know do a lot of things for your life so that's all i have about this book again international bestseller i think it's an incredible book and i think that if you're someone who is just starting to get into health and wellness it could be an interesting book to check out I think that if you are already deep into your journey, I think that this episode should give you a good idea of the main points of the book. And I wouldn't say you'd have to go read it yourself, but I'll let you make that choice on your own. So as always, guys I really and girls, I really appreciate you checking in, uh, listening to this episode, hearing me talk for 25 minutes. And I hope that this episode served you in some way. If you want to talk about it, as always, hit me up. So with that being said, go live an extraordinary life and I'll see you next time.